Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So something has changed in the eight years that I've been part of this church. When I first got here, I thought that you as a congregation demanded perfection. And now I realize that what you yearn for more than anything else is authenticity and community. And I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there because during first service, a good friend of mine, she's the precocious and wonderful Maeve, came up to me and said, I know that the sermon today is about patience. Could you make it short? And I said, Maeve, I have a lot to say. And then she said, well, it's just that Pastor Randy preaches so long. I don't know if we're going to be able to fulfill Maeve's request. After all, at the end of first service, she came up to me and she said, you lied to me. But we've become this family. And when I look at you from this vantage point, I wonder and realize how much of a vision you've become. How wonderful you look. How sharp Steve's tie and and shirt combination is today. How my friend Scott always has the most interesting factoids about his clothes, we indeed are a family. And because we're a family, I feel it's necessary to share some things that are going on in my life. I have a dream. And the dream isn't a utopia, it's actually really easily achievable. My dream is to go on a cruise. Because the apex of American excess is to sit and eat copious amounts of food and to lounge in front of a pool as the ocean passes by and to wake up at a deliciously late hour. So my dream is to go on a cruise. The problem is that Linda is terrified of cruises. And the reason why she's terrified of cruises is because she has watched a bunch of murder mystery documentaries And those murder mystery documentaries always happen on board a ship. And so, as you might guess, there's quite a bit of convincing that I need to do. 
And I attempted to convince her by just looking straight into her and in my sweetest voice, reminding her how committed I am to our family. How much I love the fact that we have two wonderful boys. I also felt it necessary to remind her that I had no intention of murdering her. I mean, I think Loma Linda University Church, the lowest base that we can hold our pastors at is uh, no murder. For some reason, though, that didn't convince her. And so I then had to remind her that as I'm getting close to 40, I have no intention of entering that Darwinian experience, otherwise known as the dating scene. And that seemed to do the trick because she booked two cruise tickets to the Mexican Riviera. It's very exciting. I mean, I know you're not excited because you're not going, but it's, it's, it's very exciting. Uh, probably the most exciting part is that my kids aren't coming with me. And I felt, I felt a bit guilty, but not guilty enough to take them with me, uh, just guilty enough to invite them out to dinner. And so my two boys were eating with me at a restaurant, and I was telling them about all the expectations and the rules and the regulations that they are to follow while they're at grandma's house. And then my back started to hurt a bit. I thought it was just excitement. So I brushed it off, we climbed onto my car and we started driving, my back got increasingly more and more tender. And in my mind, I'm just thinking, I just gotta make it to tomorrow. I just gotta get on that boat and as I watch the beautiful Pacific just sail on by, everything's gonna be fine. So we pull up to my driveway my kids jump out of the car, they run in in order to start packing their bags, and the moment that my foot touches the cement, my back seizes. Now, if you've ever had back issues, you know that when you have a back spasm like this, the way to deal with it is to summon up a perfect mixture of composure, courage, and patience. I didn't have any of those qualities that day. And so as I fell forward onto my driveway, I started yelling out in agony. My neighbor, who's a wonderful dietitian, ran over and she looks at me and she says, is everything okay? Here's the weird part though, as she's asking me this, it's like this remnant of toxic masculinity that I thought I had exercised. This machismo that I don't recognize begins to bubble up inside me and so I look at her and I say, yeah, I'm fine, I'm just stretching. <laughs> because that's normal. God bless her, she says, is there anything I can do for you? And I tell her, well, can you hand my phone over to me? And so she does, and I dial Linda's number. 
Now, I don't want to worry her. I think that the image of her husband mangled up on the driveway is too much for her to bear. Plus, let's face it, I don't want my cruise getting canceled. And so in the calmest voice that I can muster, I say, honey, how long until you get home? Lynn says, oh, I'll be home in about 20 minutes. I say, oh, okay, well, I've got a surprise for you when you get here. And then I hang up. My neighbor asks me if everything's going to be okay. I tell her, yeah, I'm just going to hang out here until Linda comes. <laughs> and then, and please don't quote me on this, and I know that the theology is a little iffy, then God says, Miguel, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to teach you a lesson in the school of affliction. I'm going to give you a crash course in patience because my whole body begins to seize. And at that moment, we have to call the ambulance. And so I get in, or rather I'm thrown into this ambulance, taken to the emergency room, pumped full of wonderful medications. And then I receive this instruction from the ER doc. She tells me, follow up with your primary. So fast forward a couple weeks, I know that hospitals have these really draconian confidentiality rules, so I'm not going to tell you where I was, I just pulled into this fac facility in Redlands. <laughs> and as I walk into the lobby at Kaiser, I realize that a bunch of you healthcare providers have left Loma Linda to go work for Kaiser. <laughs> I mean, that has nothing to do with the message for today. I just want you to know that your pastors are always watching you. <laughs> and we will talk about that later. Now, I know that it's happened to you. I know that at some point in your life, you've entered into a moment of crisis, and you've made all these promises, these pleas. You've said, I will change the way I live my life, and the moment the crisis passes, we go back to our old life, don't we? And so here I am in the hospital, waiting for my primary care physician impatient and restless. And as I'm thumbing through a magazine, it dawns on me that this space of restlessness that has become all too common for me occurs when our expectations don't match up with our reality. And you don't need to have a cruise canceled in order to realize that something happens within us when our expectations fall short of our reality. And you jump into the space of restlessness. This common occurrence that is part and parcel of our time. Think about your own life. Picture yourself in that empty office space dotted with cubicles, or in that harried and hurried made up 
home office. And the temptation to get distracted is just a click away. And you're not really being productive, but you're busy. You're also not being lazy. You're feeling restless because your expectations haven't met up with your reality. And now you are pointlessly at work. And so I'm thinking about this as the doctors which like to torture us move me from one waiting room to a smaller waiting room. And as I'm looking at the magazines that she has there, one article catches my eye. It's a report put out by the Mayo Clinic that indicates that 40% of physicians in America struggle with burnout and depersonalization. Why you would put that magazine and that article in a doctor's office, I do not know. But I didn't know what depersonalization meant, so I googled it really quick, and I realized that depersonalization is the experience of not viewing those you care for as human. And so in my mind now, not only am I restless and impatient, I'm also anxious because I just know that my primary care physician doesn't see me as a person whose dreams have been dashed. She sees me as a flesh and a slab of meat. So she walks in and starts asking me some questions. I don't respond. She continues trying to figure out what happened at the ER. I still don't respond. Because with every fiber in my being, I want to answer this questionnaire by simply saying, you do realize I am human, right? So she pauses for a moment, and she knows what I'm thinking, and she says, oh, I know what's going on. You seem a little jumpy. You read that... Mayo Clinic report, didn't you? (laughs) Don't worry, I know that if I cut you, you will bleed. She says, I know that, here's another article that I think you should read. And I'm figuring, oh great. She's about to pull something that says 25% of physicians are now cannibals. But instead of that, she hands me an article, and the title of it is simply, 80% of millennials are restless and burnt out. And then it hits me. I'm not devastated because I didn't go on my cruise. I'm not restless because I have to finish writing a dissertation. I'm impatient because my reality hasn't met my expectations. That was a sober moment. And as you know, we are in the middle of a sermon series entitled Fruitful. And it's dealing with these ideas of the fruits of the Spirit. And I'm thinking about you, and I'm thinking about dreams dashed, and I'm thinking about doctors that are burnt out, and millennials that are restless, and all the while, I'm still in this doctor's office. 
And my primary care physician says something incredibly profound. She looks at me and she says, it's all out of balance. And I smirk and I say, I know the world is messed up. And she looks at me and she says, no, I'm talking about your hips. (laughs) And then it hits me. Patience. Fruitful. We're all out of balance. We're experiencing restlessness. And the question is, how do we counteract it? Today, I want to invite you to consider two communities. Two communities out of balance. Two churches that are restless. Two congregations that are impatient. There's those Corinthians... And those Corinthians are dealing with all kinds of problems. There's debates on spiritual gifts. There's issues of sexual immorality. There's silos that have forced them now to start partaking of the Lord's Supper separately. And then there's the Galatians. That church in Galatia that is forcing circumcision upon people that has corrupted the gospel and now believes that we are justified by obedience. And what is Paul's recipe? What is Paul's prescription for these churches to move out of a space of restlessness into an arena of rest? One word. Pastor Randy introduced us to that word a few weeks ago, and it is the first step if we are to remove restlessness and recover rest. It all starts with love. Now, I know that it might be a bit simplistic. I know that our language, and particularly that term, has been devaluated. And after all, I was in my favorite coffee shop yesterday, and I looked at the barista, and I said, oh, I love you. You're the best part of my morning." That's how devalued the idea of love has become. And that's not just a scourge of our time. But you see, Paul believes that the first step of, in recovering rest is love. Now, he uses this word, agape, and we talked about it a few weeks ago. What you perhaps don't know is that that word is a fully Christian word. It only appears four times outside of the New Testament. And Paul baptizes this word to remind his congregations, to remind a restless people, a community out of balance, that love, agape, is not an emotion. Agape is an orientation of the will. It's a mindset. I can't tell you what love is. I can tell you what love does, though. And so in both Galatians chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul begins to develop this concept of love. Now, talking about the text that we've been living in for the past few weeks, the great 
an eminent theologian, John Stott, says that the fruits of the Spirit can be divided into three primary groups. The first two, love and joy, have to do with our relationship with God. And the next triad, peace, patience, kindness, have to do with our relationship with each other. And the last two, gentleness and self-control, well, they have to do with our relationship with ourselves. I love that idea. And I very much appreciate Stott's division, but I think he's missed a nuance. Love isn't part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is a descriptor of how a community that is moved out of restlessness and into rest acts. Another word that is lost, its meaning is patience. I know what you think when you think about patience. The image comes to mind flooding your senses. You're in Southern California and you're stuck in our terrible traffic. You're stuck behind a person that doesn't realize that here in Southern California, speed limits are more like suggestions. And with every fiber of your being, you want to honk that horn until you see the license plate frame and you realize that it reads, the Sabbath is still the seventh day. And you say, oh, no. <laughs> By the way, there's a Greek word for waiting behind a slow driver in traffic. Hupomone. But in Galatians chapter 5, when thinking about the fruit of the Spirit, and in 1 Corinthians 13, when describing what love is, Paul doesn't use that word. Because that's an emotion. Paul uses a word that is more closely connected to this idea of an orientation of the will. He chooses a compound word made up of two Greek words, makro and thymea. Makro means long, thymea means passion. And so when thinking about that famous passage in Corinthians or our Fruit of the Spirit series for this particular time in our church's life, that's what, it, that's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about the idea of being long-passioned. Well, what does patience mean in this context? F.F. F. Bruce, the eminent Bible scholar, describes it probably best when thinking about these things. He says, if in English we had an adjective long-tempered as a counterpart to short-tempered, then macrothemia, the word that Paul uses, could be called the quality of being long-tempered. So how does Paul move his congregation from restlessness into rest? He says it starts with love. And then well, then he channels Jesus. As Christ gives the constitution of the kingdom, do you remember the words? If someone forces you to go a mile with them, go two miles instead. 
Paul realized that if you are able to master and muster this capacity for long-temperedness, you will be truly free. Freedom. Another word. Another word that becomes central to Paul's excursus to the church in Galatia. It's a passionate plea throughout the whole letter. Paul is pushing back ravenously against those that would corrupt the gospel and sell you a bill of goods that say you are justified by obedience. He builds his argument in a crescendo until we get to Galatians chapter 1, chapter 5, verse 1, which reads, it is for freedom's sake that Christ has set you free. So you start with love. And your commitment to love gives you freedom. Jacques Ellul the French philosopher and theologian, defines freedom, the freedom that a long-tempered Christian is called to experience in the following way. Elul writes, the glorious liberty of the children of God is not the happy fluttering of a butterfly. From one attractive flower to another, it is a joyous but also radical, hard, and absolute giving us our burden, God launches us into an unsuspected adventure, a conflict, which is that of freedom. Elul is saying that restoration to rest is an orientation of the will. That the antidote to restlessness requires intentional thought. That patience is more than simply waiting behind a line of cars on the freeway. Or a checkout counter at the grocery store. Because long-temperedness has to do with the way in which you react to those that consistently harm you. So you start with love. Love gives you freedom. And freedom introduces you to another word. Patience. But the patience that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 and Galatians 5 is a paradox. Patience is a paradox. And I know that you're scratching your head and saying, well, what does that mean? Well, as Christians, we talk a lot about paradoxes, don't we? We say the first shall be last. He who holds on to his life will lose it. What is this paradox 
have to do with the idea of freedom. With this idea of love in an orientation of the will, what Paul is telling these communities that are restless and impatient, that the only way to be truly free is to serve. And you might be thinking, well, that works. I mean, intellectually, it makes sense. And I can work on my long-temperedness. The only problem, the only problem is that the world is full of people. And people sometimes can be annoying. Now, here at Loma Linda University Church, we talk about the idea of growing disciples. And you might be saying, I get the concept of love. I get the concept of freedom. I understand what it means to live in a paradox. But how am I going to minister to my coworker that continues to push my buttons? How am I going to relate to that family member that, you, that knows the right words, the right pressure points to apply and makes me lose my temper? Well, that's nothing new. Here, the Corinthian church was dealing with people that were speaking in tongues and taking over the worship service, and the Galatians were dealing with this idea that they needed to check for your status as circumcised. Talk about awkward church services. So Paul is penning this letter and saying, the way that you develop long-temperedness is you adjust your life to be lived in the same rhythm that Jesus lived his life in. And you might be asking, well, what is that rhythm? Well, Jesus, Jesus ministered in the valley. And as disciples, we want you to go out and minister in the valley. But something really interesting happened throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. Yeah, after he was done healing and teaching and comforting and blessing, you know, his hands were dirty and his feet were journey weary. When everybody else was celebrating and laughing and dreaming about what place they would have in the kingdom, Jesus went up into the mountain alone. You cannot minister in the valley if you don't go into the mountain alone. You cannot develop long-temperedness if you don't cultivate the capacity for solitude. Mary Oliver, who's a theologian and a poet, talks about the importance of solitude for the spiritual experience. She has a pithy poem entitled, The Old Poets of China. And this is what the poem says. Oliver writes, wherever I am, the world comes after me. It offers me its busyness. It doesn't believe I don't want it. Now I understand 
Now I understand why the old poets of China went so far and high into the mountains and then crept into the mist. So it starts with love. Love gives you freedom. Freedom allows you the capacity to get comfortable with the paradox. And that comfort allows you to live out a life where you recognize that the best way to serve in the valley is by going up into the mountain. But up to this point, it's all intellectual, isn't it? So what does long-temperedness look like in Southern California? What does patience look like in Southern California and Loma Linda in 2022? Well, my prayer is that if you spend enough time with God on the mountain, God will give you the maturity to relinquish your right to be right. If you truly, truly want to develop long-temperedness, you need to be able to relinquish your right to be right. The problem with these unbalanced communities in Galatia and in Corinth was that they were boasting about the works that made them different. Here's the truth. The flesh, the flesh is going to tear us asunder. The spirit is the only thing that can bind us together. Still too intellectual for you, family? Well, let me touch a tinge at the strings in your heart that make you uncomfortable. Relinquishing your right to be right means... That when you leave this place and you go to the gas station and you look at the prices in the no on the nozzle and you feel this surge of anger building up inside you, you resist the temptation to take a picture and upload it to social media and, see it, and say, it's all those Biden voters' fault. Relinquishing your right to be right is when you open your newspaper tomorrow and you read about the crisis in the world and the homelessness and the poverty and the hunger and the immigration crisis that you resist your temptation to say, oh, those non-Biden voters, they don't care about anyone but themselves. I'm still not hitting close to home. Relinquishing your right to be right means that as you sit in this sanctuary and you look around and you see people with masks and people without masks, you cease to make assumptions about them. The flesh will tear us apart. The spirit will bind us together. That's what it means to be patient. That's what long-temperedness looks like.
There's a story I like about the old desert fathers. It's a monk, and he's feeling quite a bit of distress because every time somebody insults him, he loses his temper. So he goes to his mentor and he says, I've got this problem, you've got to help me. The mentor hears compassionately and says, I have a solution for you. Every time somebody insults you, I want you to commit for the next three months to give them money. Wait, what? Yeah, for the next three months, every time some, somebody insults you, I need you to give them money. Three months is a long time. You know what? Better yet, let's try three years. And the young monk, feeling out of options, agrees. And three years pass. And at the end of the three years, he is transferred to another monastery in another city. And when he walks into the gates of that city, he is greeted with a litany of insults. He lets the words wash over him. And then he begins to laugh. Well, the people that are gathered at the city gate can't resist the temptation to go and talk to him. And so they say, why are you laughing? And this young monk, this long-tempered follower of Christ, says, I can't help but laugh because you are giving me for free what I have paid for for the past three years. You start with love. Love gives you freedom. Freedom allows you to be comfortable in the paradox. Your comfort in the paradox pushes you to seek God on the mountain. And those mountaintop experiences give you the maturity to relinquish your right to be right. And that is what it means to be patient. Because for freedom's sake, Christ, Christ has set you free. Pray with me. in the silence, in the solitude of our own hearts and experience, we would ask, O oh Lord, to examine us. Allow us to love better. Allow us to experience freedom, to find comfort in the paradox, to run towards solitude, to mature enough to relinquish our right to be right. So that we may speak your words. 
so, we, so that we may act in the way that you act. So that we might have Christ's mindset. We pray in your name. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.